0: This is Client Conversations, a podcast from Charles Russell Speechlys.
1: Hello, and welcome to Client Conversations. My name is Simon Redpath, and I'm managing partner at Charles Russell Speechlys. Each episode of these podcasts are recorded together with our senior partner and private client lawyer Bart Peerless, and he's joined by a special client guest for a conversation about their life, its challenges. And lessons learned. Our final guest of the season is no exception and those of you who are musical theatre fans are in for a treat and we will be delighted to hear that we're joined by world renowned theatre producer Sir Cameron McIntosh. Described by the New York Times as the most successful, influential and powerful theatrical producer in the world, Sir Cameron started his career as a stagehand, working his way up to produce some of the most famous musicals in the world such as Cats and Les Miserables. He is a co-owner of the theatre licensing company Music Theatre International and is the owner of Delfont Macintosh Theatres, which operates eight of the most prestigious theatres in London's West End. The Prince Edward, Prince of Wales, Novello, Gielgud, Sondheim, Noel Coward, Wyndhams and Victoria Palace, all of which have undergone major refurbishments, combining beautiful restoration with 21st century comfort. Each year, Cameron's theatrical companies engage and support more than 3,000 artists, technicians, theatre staff and freelancers worldwide. Sir Cameron was knighted in the 1996 New Year's Honours List for his services to British theatre and is the first British producer ever to be elected to Broadway's Theatre Hall of Fame. In addition to his dedication to the arts, Sir Cameron formed the Macintosh Foundation in 1988, and so far, it's donated over £25 million to good causes. The Macintosh Foundation contributes not only to the theatre and performing arts, but also healthcare, particularly research into cancer and HIV and AIDS, homelessness projects, community projects and the environment, as well as aiding the refugee crisis. We had great fun recording this podcast in Sir Cameron's offices in Bloomsbury Square in London, And it was a real pleasure listening to his stories about how he got to where he is today, what drove him, how he got his financing, and his sheer determination and self-belief to go on despite challenges thrown at him, something we can all take away in our daily lives. Before we jump right into the conversation, this episode does have the occasional swear word, which if you're easily offended, please do skip and enjoy the show notes where you can read the interview in full. So without further ado, please sit back and enjoy our final episode of season one of Client Conversations.
0: Yes, a little busy at the (laughs)
2: moment. We'll we'll make this as
0: painless as possible. I'm just going to ramble. Uh, Can we start at the beginning? Do start. Can we start at the beginning, which is, you know, you started out in, I think you produced your first show in 1967 and uh, you've been a stagehand before that. So what what made you choose musical theater, Ron? No, it all started long before that. Right. Go um,
2: for it. Um, my aunt Jean took me to see Salad Days, a yeah. musical, and uh, I went to see about Minnie the Magic Piano and I was completely entranced. And I decided at the end of the show that I would march down to the to the pit where I discovered that the uh writer of the show um, Julian Slade was playing the piano in the pit and it be- this show had become this huge hit one of the, that and The Boyfriend were the two big hits after the war and ran for five years over five years and I went up to him and at, on, at the end of the show he was very nice to me and I, he said well would you like to come backstage and I said yes please um, so I marched round the, to the stage door with him um, in my kilt and he showed me how the flying saucer came in and out and how the magic piano on stage was played by him in the pit. And was actually, it was actually was all all wonderful. And now the scene moved in and out. And I went, this is what I'm going to do when I, when I grow up. And within a few weeks, I'd worked out that this was actually called a producer. And I was going to be a producer. So everybody from the age of eight knew that that is what I was going to do. And I was going to produce
0: musicals. And, and I did. And you do. And you do. And I still do.
1: Yes.
0: And so, you know, the world of musical, I mean, saturdays Days, certainly, you know, my parents would have loved It's a wonderful musical. I don't know whether it's been, it's probably not been revived for years. It does been. get revived.
2: You know, funny enough, it's another show that as the authors die, they hand over their rights to me. Well,
0: <laughs> and well, it's another
2: they? show. You should know that, is my lawyer. <laughs> but actually, I own it. You don't know anything. Of course. Come on. Come on. Of course, I knew that, Cameron. <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
0: So, uh, so I mean, the musical theatre has just changed beyond all recognition from then, clearly. But when you sort of, as you roll forward to the late nineteen sixties, one of the themes of these interviews has been people who I, I mean, perhaps this is not quite the way to describe you, who have been sort of quietly revolutionary in what they do. So they don't, their exterior is not hugely revolutionary or entrepreneurial, but they've seen things differently and they've, they've changed in quite fundamental ways the way in which people do business in a particular sector musical theatre has been fundamentally changed by what you have done yes. and others of your generation was there a, yeah, was there a that moment that wasn't before? changed that didn't happen until the
2: 1980s I mean you know and that's why I met Andrew Lloyd Webber yes. but you know back in the 60s I mean the greatest star in the 60s was La Bart as a pop writer and writer of great musicals, including, of course, one of the greatest, which is Oliver. Yeah. And that's what I saw when I was 14, um, seeing it shortly after it opened. And that show itself revolutionised theatre because it was the first time ever that scenery had changed in front of an audience's eyes instead of a sort of rather shaky cloth. Yeah. And also it was one of the very first British musicals to take Broadway by storm and, of course, become, I think, probably the most awarded musical uh, in cinema history. You know, it was hugely successful around the world. And, you know, that show had incredible effect on me as a budding producer because it taught me how important scenery was as well as, as, well as the book and how the whole thing had to be integrated. And, you know, I ended up five years later, um, before I was a producer, actually being an actor and rehearsing on that set. Um, and going out on the first national tour of Oliver and performing for a year. It's the only mm-hmm. show I've ever been actually paid to sing and dance. I've been, a lot of people offered me money not to sing <laughs> or to dance, but <laughs> this one I actually got paid That'll for a year. And I learned everything backstage and um, and, I, and about performing and, uh, and even the rudiments of direction. So that show literally that barnstormed the world. And and surely I also, you know, I got to see My Fair Lady, which turned out to be another extraordinary show in my life and my friendship. Both then, you know, I'd started off, I I met Lionel Bart on the opening night of the tour in Manchester in the mid sixties. I shortly after that met met Alan J. Lerner, who wrote My Fair Lady. And these giants in the theatre became my friends when I was a teenager. Um, uh, and, you know, that led on to me meeting Andrew Lloyd Webber and Buben and Schoenberg, and, of course, in the mid-'70s, uh, when I had been touring for about six or seven years, I got to meet, you know, the genius of Stephen Sondheim. The first show that I actually produced in 1967 was Of course, the misnamed reluctant debutant, anyone less reluctant than me (laughs) to take the world by storm and put on a show (laughs) you couldn't possibly find. But that's what I did at the Kenton Theatre in Henley as one of three producers. And I just, I mean, I didn't have any money in it. It was Roy Plomley. It was his idea to to do a season of rep and reopen this beautiful old Georgian Theatre, which we did just five weeks. Within... A year, I, I was regularly putting on shows, you know, and apart from the disaster of a not very good production of Anything Goes, which sank in two weeks at the Saville Theatre, and then right. the inexplicable failure of a marvellous stage version of Mrs. Dale's diary called At Home with the Dales, which right. was actually very good, but very good actors and a wonderful director, and nobody wanted to see it. Everybody wanted to listen to it on the radio, um um, but nobody wanted to see it in theater so i had to take a three or four month break from that during which time i i i became the executive uh, a a runner to the executive producer of hair during this period and got all my kit off when i eventually appeared in it on the last night in glasgow and uh it was an amazing time as the theater changed and they got rid of the lord chamberlain in fact the show was delayed by Uh, A couple of months in order that the Lord Chamberlain, who was the great censor, Mm. couldn't get his hands on it. Well, well, yes, and they stopped him. And then it was the first show that any friends of mine outside the theatre wanted to go and see, because it literally, it wasn't for theatre people, it was for ordinary people. It was about, it was with fantastic music. It was a show that expressed what was going on in the world at that point. Um and it, and of course within two to three years all the rich people would design all the theatre guys. Well, well, what is it all about? I yes. want to go and see it and have yeah. an opinion. And so they came two or three years later and of course it was a great, great success. Um
0: and very fond memories. And then so on to the nineteen eighties, I mean extraordinary run of, of successes with Les Miserables, Cats and Fantasy. Yeah, but I mean that was a long that was sixteen years coming, you know.
2: Yeah. I mean before that I'd you know, I'd been doing Godspell, and I'd been doing, and then the the, the most inst- instrumental thing into raising the level of my productivity was exactly the Arts Council. I had had the idea of doing Oliver again, and um, to see it as I was touring musicals uh, out of Leicester, and um, I put on production Oliver with with Roy Harder, which turned out to be a huge success, and filled all the all the recently defunct touring theatres of this country and proved that people would go out and see a great show as long as it was well done. Head of the Arts Council rang me up and said, look, we've saved all these theatres for the local authorities. Would, would you put on some shows for us? My first show I took up was My Fair Lady. I'd offered them The Sound of Music, but they went, we'll never get the nuns through the Council. <laughs> 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 At least Shaw gives us a, a fighting chance. <laughs> so we did that, and then the following year we did Yo, yeah. And then out of that, uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber rang me up, um, having forgiven me for trying to kill him one night by knocking a breaking a bottle of port over his head when he'd made a rude remark. Um, he, uh, he, uh, uh, they, he said, let's go and have lunch. And, um, we had a very old, drunken lunch at the Garrett club. Was the Garrett? No, it wasn't the Garrett club. It was another one. I can't remember. Anyway, it was a very nice club. And, uh, went back and he played me some tunes, which ended up as a little show called Cats. Mm-hmm. But neither of us knew what it, we just felt there was something there and oh, that was the beginning of the chemistry that i had with them and of course cats which nobody wants to put any money in i said if it was even called dogs they would giving them <laughs> <laughs> they hated
0: cats and in fact so
2: most of the people who put money into cats had never put invested at all people who, for some reason who'd had mm-hmm. money in post offices no one in the business at all everybody in the business said this is a catastrophe that was uh, what they thought
1: what made you so certain that it, it- it
2: would be the a, a success. You never know anything. Yeah. I mean, anyone who thinks that they know what a success is is an idiot. Mm. I had no idea. I just knew there was something something there. Everyone had turned Andrew down before I knew it. I mean, I knew I was in with a racing chance of doing something with it because I, I knew everybody else had said it was the stupidest idea he'd ever had in the world. Yeah. But like most of hits are everyone else in the business thinks are going to be an absolute shocking failure. And the ones that are shocking failures, everyone thinks are going to be hit. Yeah. That's the way it works. We were literally raising money during the previews still. In fact, the last, the last investment was put in by the cat I had in my office. Um, uh, and when I was above the Fortune Theater, and had 25 pounds in it, which was a lot of money. It was the richest, fattest cat ever. <laughs> Lived for years on it, oh, enormous good. takings out of yeah. cats. <laughs> We've still got somewhere the contract in the files.
1: <laughs> and, and was there then a, a moment where having raised that finance and having sort of persuaded people to invest, was there that certain moment where you, you sort of thought, never again will, will this sort of thing happen to me because if I believe that there's, some, uh, there's a great show in there, actually I'll always back my own judgment? Or had you always backed your own judgment? Always had to back my own judgment.
2: I borrowed £10 here from my aunt, £25 here and there. You know, when I started, you could put a show on for £250. Mm. The wretched banking, the banking system was marvellous. I was taught by my original a uh, mentor who was uh, undis- uh, undisclosed bankrupt um, and uh, an <laughs> inebriate but absolutely marvelous, charming old boy. And he said, my dear, the only thing you need now, uh, he said, you know, to start off in the business, he said, you need three banks, one in central London with quite a good address, um, uh, then a Scottish bank. Uh, because they, in those days, shows how long ago it was, stand for probity. Um, and uh, preferably with the Royal Crescent. And then either something in Northern Ireland, but I wouldn't trust the post, uh, or the Channel Islands. He said, you know, if you then write a cheque, it took three weeks for the cheques to go on the road uh, and come back. So you've got three weeks' credit it was a marvellous system yeah. and the trick was if you had a sh- schlonky tour going around yeah. to get another tour on before the bank realized <laughs> that you still owed money from the last the first one and i mean i used to go i mean my you know i was 20 at the time 21 i mean i was start signing on at the dole in um, listen grove but i used to get there go there very early I mean, I knew, knew none of the actors would go in there. So I used crawl out of bed and get there about 8 or 8.30, get my doll and then bugger off to the rehearsal studio because I didn't think the actor would like to see their producer yeah. um, getting the doll before they, no. <laughs> they did. And you only had to do a week's rehearsal anyway in those days. See, The whole thing was on a shoestring. You just lived on your wits
0: what made you make the leap from producer to theatre owner why did you decide i didn't it was nothing to do with me it was
2: bernard delpho going on and on and on um great old bernie he said cameron you should have some theaters they won't be cheap but you'll think they are in 10 years he said you know and i'd met bernie over the whole problem of not finding a theater for cats so we couldn't there was cats were so extraordinary we didn't know what it was if it wasn't for bernie stepping in and that show wouldn't have opened and who knows if the history of the musical theatre would have changed. The the extraordinary thing that cats did for all of us, it gave us all our independence. You know, I I when Andrew when I'd looked at it, because it wasn't cats, it was just the poems of practical cats on the original script. We didn't change we it was called Practical Cats until a few weeks before we started there was Trevor said, Why don't you have practical cats? It's a bit of a mouthful. Uh, why not just call it cats? And we went, All right. Yeah. You know, and memory wasn't in the sh- sh- show. I mean, Andrew thought the big number was going to be Grizabella the Glamour Cat. Mm. And when we played, premiered at a Michael Parkinson show, I remember Michael Parkinson going, Oh, so what are you going to do next, Andrew? <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: Uh, (laughs) but you're right it's that sort of I suppose it's you know you make that first thing that gives you your it did and then I went to see there was a famous English producer called Harold
2: Fielding I went where does he bank because I knew he didn't mind taking the odd risk (laughs) and uh, I found out it was at the National West at Leicester Square I went that's where I'm going and I went to meet the bank manager and I mentioned the Dales before which was a terrible plot and I couldn't pay the bill. And I went to tell the bank manager that I was, I'm was, i going to have to pull it off. And he said, I haven't got any money to pay the actors. And he I went, no, I said, I haven't. I'm just being honest with you. It's all catastrophe after anything goes. And he said, all right, if you promise me that you will pay the actors, because if you lose your good name about paying actors, you've always, you know, you, that's the most valuable thing. You can make a deal with all the traders, but you've got to pay the actors or you'll be struck off. And they said, I promise you I'll do that. So he gave me, just on my signature, 500 pounds to pay the actors. Gosh. And that was a pivotal moment in my life and, and a, a lesson learned that you, he said, people, if they think you're talented, and there aren't many in theater, he said, if they think you're talented, people will give you a lot of rope as long as you don't hang yourself. And he said, just be honest with them.
1: So Cats Cats was one of those transformatory moments where you... For
2: me, for Trevor Nunn, for Gillian Lynn, for Andrew.
1: Andrew was suddenly able to do a show without Tim Rice. So did did you find it changed your approach after Cats because you had that independence? Yeah, well, I mean, mean, I've never
2: really done anything I don't want to do. I was always completely arrogant about just doing what I wanted um, and on far trying to find a way I used yeah. usually on a shoestring and wow. I think the big thing Andrew and I did do we turned we turned the theater from being an industry where oh sorry a, a profession where you can have hits into an industry you know and the problem is you know it's it's still a industry where it's only as good as the show yeah. and actually it's an industry that was created on the back of Just four shows, really, both done, all all four done by Andrew and in the 80s. What are the positives? It's employed a lot of people. It made, on the musical front, the British musical incredibly professional. And, you know, at that point in London in early 80s, well, it was 1981, wasn't it? I mean, there were three or four musicals. I was gonna say, what would have been running then at the time? Probably a Saturday's revival, maybe. Well, maybe, probably. Yeah. I mean, you know, there would have been show, little night music or yeah. um, company coming on for a year, eighteen yeah. months, two. years. Those kind of American shows coming yeah. to London. Um, so that's that was the kind of world. You know, and you know, when we started taking shows to to Broadway in the early '80s, a third of the theaters were empty on Broadway. We single-handedly saved the industry there. They had an industry there, but they didn't have the shows. Uh, It was completely different. We we were very pivotal in the musical theatre suddenly growing up at the same time as air travel started for normal people. You know, before the 1980s, you had to be very rich to be able to go and fly. This is the time with these shows had the most extraordinary effect galvanizing the world across the world yeah. i mean nobody would ever put on shows reproductions of successful shows apart from you know my Fair lady would go to various countries but hardly hardly any shows have been reproduced. so i was very surprised when people said we'd like to do late Miserable* and all of these other shows and we want to do a copy of your production so suddenly we were putting on West end or Broadway shows in various countries. Nor nor would never have done them before.
0: Cameron Macintosh Limited is a phenomenal business now, Cameron. So you've got you've got obviously the productions, you've got an amazing eight theaters in the West End, which are all, you know, stunningly restored and beautiful theatres. You've got the the rights through MTI as well. So in some ways you say it's it's all, you know, you said earlier on you never know what's gonna work, it's all a bit of luck, but you know it this is an extraordinary business now to have three things that went right that you would put that success down to. I think utter selfishness, <laughs> <laughs> and I've obviously
2: been blessed with an instinct of choosing shows which are unusual. I, you know, I my I think my I think the gift I was given. I mean, apart from common sense, um, is. I do have a good sense of housekeeping and, and, and I, you know, I've taken quite a number of risks, but I always measure the risk. You know, I don't want... The one thing I learnt about my early flops, and I'm very glad I had them, was you don't want to be wiped out. You, t- you risk enough that you can still fight another day because yeah. you never know what's going to work. And indeed, all the shows that had been hugely successful were considered a risk up front until probably Miss Saigon which actually, ironically, was the riskiest material of it all. But by the end of the 80s, when it came out in 1989, you know, Cats, everyone thought was going to be a failure. They would know very little advance. Um, the next one was, um, what's the next one? The next one was Lame Mis. Mis. Everybody thought it was a flop, except the public. Um, but you know, with no advance at all, even when it transferred. Phantom, even when we put Michael Crawford into it, didn't have much of advance. A little bit more than the others, because it was Andrew, but Michael, nobody associated Michael with this. And then the three of them abrupted into on a scale nobody had ever seen before. So by the time Andrew did aspects of love. With, with Michael Ball, who I had in, um, in Les Mis, yes. uh, and, and I did Miss Saigon, uh, Drury Lane. And they both opened to the biggest advance of any show in history in that period. But that's at that point, the touts and the phenomena of the British musical and all of this had made the public go, we're going to buy the tickets anyway. We don't want to spend £200 on a £50 ticket yes uh, with the yes. brokers if we yeah. want to see it in the first two years that's one of the reasons they did it so that then carried on through into the seven, in, into in into the 90s you know um, and I mean what's been amazing is how you know the shows have continued life and and people are on the back of it on the back particularly of Phantom and Saigon more than Les Mis Les Mis was the first show that I would tour across America and I refused to cut it down. They said, you've got to do a cheaper version if you want to tour it. I went, no, if it's not going to be, what if it's not my shirt as I want it, I'm not going to do it. Well, of course, it proved to be an enormous success and it was worth doing it. And then on the back of that Phantom and Saigon, even more Saigon, because it was so huge, I would say half the theatres across America and across the world were rebuilt or built to house the show. I mean, at the famous Princess of Wales in Toronto, um, down, got downstairs, you'll see the, somewhere the spade that Ed, Ed Mervish and I dug the foundations to build it. And that theatre was built to house Miss Saigon, which opened it.
0: Can we talk a little bit about, about the future in the sense that, I mean, through the foundation, obviously, we're, we're, you're starting to do a lot of work now on support for regional theatres and young producers. Coming through the system. You talked earlier about the importance to your career of that early support from yeah. regional theatre, and I guess you know it, you start again. You started the interview by saying that ultimately everything is destined for the foundation. What look forward fifty years? What what would you what would you hope that would all seem like? Well, I hope we're all still here. Who knows? Yes, <laughs> absolutely.
2: I don't know. You can't tell. I mean, look. I mean. I, my, I'm, I'm, I put putting the money into not just, it's not just theatrical stuff through the foundation, as you know, it's going to be beyond that. And, um, you know, I hope rather like the American Schubert organization, which is the nearest other um, uh, group of theaters and and a body, I think we've got a probably wider body of church of, we've got, rights and and shows and ownership which which of course the Schubert's did in their time but not of shows that get done anymore um I think I I would like I think my dream is that that's what my foundation will be will be the heartbeat of the commercial theatre and preserving these great buildings for as long as people want to go to see shows I I think that the proscenium theatres these theatres which are now in their second hundred years have proved their versatility against all the naysayers in the 60s who wanted to knock them down and put up concrete monstrosities you know it's still i'd still rather have a great (laughs) edwardian theater than say the national theater where the national theater is absolutely fantastic for certain shows in certain buildings but it's a very hard theater Building to program with the right work all the time. As to the producers, I mean, you can't create a producer. You can give them the opportunity to bring their work on, and we and should. I was given endless encouragement. Not a lot of money, but it was worth more than uh, more than money by the theatre owners, both here and on, on, on Broadway. The old thing about oh, the old guard keeps the young out was not the truth. They pounced on me, you know, when Michael Codron and John Gale, who were famous producers, said, we think young Cameron's gonna, he's got something. So they all took me into their office, ploughed me with whiskey, and said, "Yeah, one day, dear boy, you'll have this. And, <laughs> and sometimes encouraged me to bring shows in, which they probably shouldn't. I mean, The Disastrous Aftershave, which was a lovely show up in... in <laughs> Uh, an all-female review. I thought I'd got the new Beyond the Fringe. Failed in two weeks. <laughs> that quick? <laughs> yes. It was a disaster. I knew it was a disaster. And on the opening night, my brother Nicky and I, I said, Nicky, help me. I'm, what, I'm going to the first night. No, we're going to my flat, which was up the road, my cheap little flat in Wardrow Street. And I said, we're going to cook all the food and, <laughs> and bring it down for the party. I've got to get my backers pissed. <laughs> They'll never forgive me. <laughs>
0: (laughs) (laughs) did they ever forgive you they did forgive you of course they forgave you well they didn't remember
2: well they did eventually (laughs) Uh, uh, but a few people actually uh, one or two of them came up to me and said Cameron this is so awful I would rather you burnt my money Uh, and I said believe me it was as good as I said
1: (laughs) (laughs) it was awful it was
2: awful but you know therefore you could but you know in the end why does one person whether they be a writer or a producer go there's something in that that I have a connection with and and, and, and work on something you can't there's no formula to being a producer as there is in any yeah. any business I don't think there's no formula you can learn all the tricks of the trade or you think they are tricks of the trade but actually there are no tricks of the trade. It's basically instinct and yeah. and, and and taste and either your taste, which you do for yourself. And I said, you know, and that's the great C.B. Cochrane in his autobiography, who was a great um, producer of Coward, Noel Coward. He he wrote in his book, my advice to young producer always is put it on for yourself. Don't think of the audience, do it as well as you can. And with a bit of luck, if you do it well enough, the audience will come. But that is the only, and I go actually makes perfect
0: sense. 'Cause you only do well what you really like, aren't you, yeah. I suspect?
2: Absolutely. And that's why I never I know, ne- you know, people send me well used to, not they don't do now, but they used to send me every script on the sun and you know, this it, i'm never attracted by the music. I have to like the music, but I, I I first thing I have to be attracted by the story and by the characters, and then I, I want the music to support that story. Yeah. Song tunes in on themselves don't mean anything. How interesting it's you. that way around, the story has to and be. And that's the famous quote of Verdi. Well, I've always said it was the quote of Verdi. That he's, they said, Signor Verdi, what is the secret of a great opera? And he went, the book, the book, the book. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it yeah. is. And that's why. And Buccini was absolute past master at trawling through every every writer in the world to get to write his libretto because they knew the strength of it you only have to look at the opera houses it's still the the ones with the best books are the operas that keep getting dull and keep bringing new new audiences in you know and it's the same with the musicals would you do anything differently no because i didn't do it i didn't do anything on purpose in the first
1: place Uh, i just uh, did it uh, (laughs) But it's it's interesting, you have that that rare perspective that you were a producer, a successful producer, first of all. Now you're a successful theatre owner. The combination of the two, do you think your attitude changed to the whole industry when you became a a theatre
2: owner? No, no, not at all. In fact, I think I've become a better theatre owner because I was a producer. I think if I'd been a theatre owner first, I would be a lousy producer because... It is completely different. It is poacher turned gamekeeper. And as I say, it was Bernie Delfont who did get me on the road to being a theatre. I never thought of it for a million years. He'd also sold the Palace Theatre to Andrew on behalf of somebody who died. He was the trustee a little before that. And then he said, knew me quite well. And he said, look, why don't you come and Take these theaters, and so originally it was the, his two worst theaters as well, which were horrible in those days. Which was the Prince Edward, which was like a terrible old cinema, uh, and the Prince of Wales, which was like a shoddy old nightclub in those days. And you know they got the B's or the C shows, in, apart from the Vita, of course, which was wonderful. But yeah. as a Vita was set in a cinema, it was rather appropriate <laughs> that it worked triumphantly in uh, in, the, in the Prince Edward. So I said, I'll do it as long as we can redo the theatres, and, you know, because they, they're just not good enough. And um, Dear Max Ray yeah, and, and Bernie were running the Bernard Dolphin Organisation or whatever right. it was at that point. And the first theatre I wanted to do up was the Prince Edward. And Max said to me, oh, no, come we, don't, we, don't, we don't need you to write a cheque. He said, it's, we've got plenty of money in the, in the bank. It's cash flow. Oh, I went, oh, it's lovely. And yeah. so that we started doing that one up. And then out of the blue, just shows you how it can happen. An Irish lawyer rang me up who, for some reason, had, had got handed over the rights to what was then the Strand Theatre, which was on a lease to the Theatre Royal Haymarket. He said, look, Karen, would you like a like the theatre, he said. He said, you've got a theatre. I said, yes. He said, would you be interested in this one? I said, well, I I like the theatre. I don't know. He said, well, I said, how much? He said, two million quid. Um, And... uh, I went, well, that seems very reasonable. Yes, he said, because there's a block of flats next door and shops next door. And it's. I, I, I said, it is a freehold, said, Yeah, Yes, a freehold in the Aldwych. I went, really, yes. He said, there's only one catch. He said, the, the, there is a 16-year lease still to go with Arnold Crook. And so I, I, I had a meeting with Max and Bernie and I said, look, I've just been offered this. And I felt on a bound to say, look, as we're now in partnership, I'd never thought, would you like to have it? Um, and uh, would be my partner, 50-50, with you, with, on this. And they said, freehold? Old Of course. And, and I said, well, um, well, that's great. And I said, so shall we open up a new bank account? No, dear boy. Cash flow. <laughs> <laughs> said Max. So I never ended up paying for it. Wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't end up paying for the other theatres. But also, but, also oh. but actually, I just feel honoured to be entrusted with those theatres, which, of course, were the theatres where I started my career and got my first job.
1: There's a circularity to all of, those, of all of it. There is. All of it. Now, is. That's, that is the truth with
2: absolutely everything. When I did my revival of the original production of Oliver, the production that I'd actually been in, National Tour, that Alan Boubiel came. And I asked him this years after the front of Les Mis, and, he said, and I said, "What?" I asked him the question, "What made you think about doing Les Mis?" He said, "Oh, I'd never seen Oliver on stage; I'd only seen the movie, and I wanted to see it because we wanted to write musicals." So he came to see it a few weeks after it opened, and as the artful Dodger was singing "Consider Yourself," Gavroche popped into his brain, and he went to the phone at the end of it and said to Claude Michel, "We must adapt Les Misérables." Entirely because of watching that production of my Oliver. And I didn't know this until five years into the run, that in the end, I actually was the catalyst.
0: That's amazing.
2: And then my house
0: yes. in Stabagale Stabagale.
2: yeah, was built, rebuilt by the person who built the Palace Theatre. Yeah. And it's the money I made from Les Mis that's gone back into the fabric of a 700-year-old priory. Things that's, I believe that that's how the world works. We generally try and
1: finish with your bit quick fire questions. Yeah, take as long as you like on any of these. What's the best and worst piece of advice you've ever received? Well, I've given you a lot of you've given us (laughs) that. The best, what's the The worst worst. piece of advice? Take it off.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Somebody told somebody who works for me told me I was a fool to who worked for me, told me I was a fool to move, to move Les Miserables from the palace and I should be very happy with the 18 runs years run. It wasn't the palace.
1: Yeah.
2: And it, and I moved it yes. to what is now the Sondheim. Yeah. And 19 years later, no. it's That's still great. there. So that, that was a was, great advice. Was it? No, <laughs> not,
1: but that wasn't very good advice. Um, what is the favorite thing? about what you do today what do you enjoy the um, most well
2: the 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 favorite thing i have is working with an author and completing the first draft or the draft of the show that the show that's in your head there the shows with any possibility and it just comes together that is it's giving birth then you've got to raise the child um but, and therefore, you don't really get any true satisfaction until the child's gone into the world and made a success <laughs> and that the audience embraced the show again. And on the opening night, you go, you know, they like it as much as I do. That's the next, but those are the two
1: moments. It's the bits in between that the go up and The moments are great, yes. 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 Um, what advice would you give to your 20-year-old self? Do it. Just do it. And finally, and it's always my favourite question: Who would play you in a film about your life?
2: Someone cute, not too chubby, and affable. I mean, I I always thought that there was part of me that was Alec Guinness in in The Card by Arnold Bennett.
1: Um,
2: which I've always seen this. That's one of the reasons. It was one of the first musicals I ever put on. The person I wouldn't want to do it is Anthony Drew, who of course does the most vicious, hysterically funny version of me ever. And of course, when they do reviews on everything, there's no doubt Anthony will come (laughs) devastatingly, make everyone howl with laughter. He's, he's, the he's the best impersonator of me impersonator. of the lot.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs>
2: but no, yeah. Alec Guinness at the time That's would have yeah. been absolutely delightful, <laughs>
1: I'm sure. Thank and you ever bright. so much, Cameron. All right, bye-bye. So the key themes from today, I think they were taking risks and backing oneself, but also being responsible but not in a boring way. Remembering who's critical to maintaining and earning that success. The performers, the backers, the writers. Um, Strong themes around change and transformation from creative entertainment and theatre to the modern day industry that musical theatre has become. And of course, Legacy, the foundation created by Sir Cameron that will be the heartbeat of commercial theatre in versatile buildings that are authentically unique. Before we let you go, I want to say a couple of words of thanks for what's been a fantastic experience of getting under the skin of some of the firm's clients and friends. Firstly, thanks to all our guests this season, Dame Stephanie Shirley, Sir Martin Smith, Neil Hedges, and of course, Sir Cameron McIntosh, all of whom have been so generous with their time and so honest about their life's trials and tribulations. My thanks to Bart for helping to drive the conversations, uh, which cover relationships built over many decades and all have strong links to philanthropy. Finally, the wider team behind the scenes that made this happen, including the Charles Russell Speechley's in-house team, Headland and Jano Media. Thank you, team. All that's left for me to say is thank you for listening. And if you haven't had a listen to them all, please do and share them with your friends and family. We will begin work on season two at the end of this summer and we look forward to sharing more client conversations. But until next time, thank you.